The most action-packed content from the top mobile experts. This is the App Masters Podcast with Steve P. Young. From Apple features to ASO to influencer marketing, you will learn all the tools and tactics to make it in the app space. Learn more at appmastersacademy.com. What is up, App Nation? It is Steve PM, founder of AppMasters.com, the place you go when you want action-packed content related to growing your app business in terms of downloads and your revenue. And today, we've got a phenomenal guest. We're going to talk all about products, UX, UI design, when you're coming with your app idea, how do you find the right developer? And I know a question that you guys ask a lot is, do I need an NDA? How do I make sure that they don't steal my code and build a billion-dollar business out of my idea? Well, we're going to uncover all that today in today's interview. Today, I've got a phenomenal guest. She is the VP for of Client Strategy at December Labs. You got to check them out. They are a high-touch design and development firm for mobile and web apps. They're at the front line of innovation. So without further ado, Liz Bowman, welcome to the show. Amazing introduction. Thanks, Steve. Happy to be here. <laughs> just like you can play 10 instruments, this is what I can do. Hopefully I can just spin yeah. off words right off the floor. Amazing. I, match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into some of the things that I know my audience, especially that are just starting out building their first startup, they their their main questions are, you know, how do I find that right developer? And Liz, this is what I get questions a lot too. And I would love to get your thoughts on this is how do I make sure that they don't steal my code and my idea, my billion dollar idea? Um, yeah, you actually are getting right into it here. <laughs> um, the good thing is that uh, I would say about that question is that, um, you know, mobile development in general is something global. You have many, many different types of options. And I'm sure that there are going to be many, many, um, you know, potential partners that are just the right fit for you. Um, the hard part is, you know, how out of all of those millions of possibilities, um, am I going to choose what will bring, like what will have the highest possibility of success? Um, and, uh, you know, to kind of answer that question, I would typically think about, you know, a three-step process. First of all, get your priority straight. I mean, you know, the, the fast, beautiful and cheap, like, you know, uh, choose two. No, I mean, it's not, it's not that simple, but, you know, really think about like, what, what is the most important part here for you? Like, are you just really budget sensitive and everything else just, you know, doesn't matter for you at this point, or, uh, you know, is, you know, working seamlessly with the team and time zone and communication, uh, you know, also very important uh, for you. Um, do you want to build something uh, scalable really from the start, or are you just really looking for something very simple, you know, like get your own kind of, you know, house in order before you start this search. Um, once you're ready to start the search, um, you have to know that there are, again, you know, like kind of different territories or different kinds of approaches to development firms or um, even freelance developers. So I think that's kind of the first one, you know, like, are you looking for uh, an in-house developer that is actually part of your company? Are you looking for a freelancer or are you uh, looking for a dev shop? And there are advantages and disadvantages to each one of these. Um, you know, getting someone on board is probably something that sounds very appealing for you, but maybe it's just too risky, kind of, especially when you're early on. 
um, and also, you know, hiring, especially in the US is like really hard. Like, I mean, we talk to so many Silicon Valley startups and it's just, you know, a pain because you have the Facebooks and the Googles out there that just, you know, get most of the, um, you know, best talent. So that said, you have, of course, the option of going with freelance people, which, um, you know, sometimes offer competitive rates and, you know, they're kind of flexible, but then also, you know, you might have to micromanage them more, um, it might not be as, sta uh, as stable, Again, you know, uh, but it is a valid option. Um, the third option is uh, going with a development firm, which, um, you know, might be a little bit more expensive than a freelancer, but also will be cheaper than getting someone in-house on board. And the advantage, I would say, is also that typically the development firm can kind of cover the entire um, development cycle. Because when you're building an app, oftentimes you think, okay, so that's just a mobile app developer. No. Well, first of all, when it's iOS and Android, that's already two people. Then you might need a backend developer, um, you know, to work on the API. And then you might uh, need a QA engineer. You might need a, pro a technical project lead. You might need Need someone for DevOps. So with a development agency, you typically have the advantage of, you know, getting all of that together. While if you would just hire this or do this on a freelance base, it's again, you know, um, different options, different advantages and disadvantages. Um, the other thing that you have to consider is again, you know, like, do I want to uh, do this offshore? Offshore typically means India or Eastern Europe. Again, you know, like has a price, um, uh, like it's competitive from a price point of view, um, but might not be in your time zone or, um, you know, you might not get the same quality than you would expect from someone that's in the US. Um, then you have nearshore um, options uh, that is typically South America where you have the same time zone, similar cultural fit. Um, and then there is hybrid options where, which is for example, what we do, um, having an office in, uh, uh, in Houston, Texas, um, and then having a nearshore office in South America. Um, so that kind of combination oftentimes is kind of interesting for people that want a little bit, you know, like of the best of all. Yeah. But uh, but again, it's um, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of work and research that to do. And um, thirdly, you know, try and find someone ideally that has some experience in what you're trying to build. Because um, if, you know, the development firm, freelancer or whoever um, already has experienced the learning curve typically is, you know, not as steep. Um, for example, um, we have worked with, you know, in the health sector. And when I say health, it's health, wearables, well-being, fitness, um, wellness. We've been working um, in that space for many years and have um, worked with many uh, products that, for example, need HIPAA compliance or that have gone through FTA approval. And having had experience with these kind of things, um, again, you know, makes the experience a lot easier, but it's not black and white. For example, if you see, um, you know, a developer that has a portfolio or, or a development firm that has a, um, a portfolio item that might be interesting for you, they might have done that a few years back and the developers might not be on their team anymore. So it's, you know, it's really a kind of an ongoing process, but if at least, you know, these three areas of getting your priorities straight, um, you know, up to kind of looking to someone within your expertise, at least that's kind of a starting point um, for you to yeah look at. I'm sure you get this all the time, Liz, but like, how do you <laughs> handle the question of like, okay, do I need an NDA in place? How do I know you're not going to steal my idea? I think it's kind of right. <laughs> like, what do you feel like? <laughs> Uh, 
I think, I mean, an NDA gets signed in five minutes, you know, everyone just feels better, um, you know, with it, of course, any, um, any serious developer development agency, um, you know, uh, should be, uh, you know, is probably working with many startups and is going through these kind of things on a day to day basis, but yeah, get, get your NDA in place. Um, the one thing I do have to say that typically these companies do have, you know, own NDAs. It's not that as a startup, you have to pay maybe, you know, a legal counselor to set up an NDA for you. I mean, it's, 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 it's really not something that hard when it later gets to contracts that that's kind of the harder part. So, you know, spend your time and money, uh, on, on that. Um, when it comes to the code and everything that I do have to say, it's very important that once, for example, you start working with a developer, um, you have really clear terms and expectations about code ownership. Um, we actually uh, wrote, a, wrote a blog article about this um, just a few weeks ago that is called, Is My App Really Mine? And it kind of has, you know, five tips for people to review to see, you know, is if, if really they have the ownership of what they've been building, you know, with their development partner um, from actually, you know, having access to the code code, to documentation, to app store access. Um, and it's funny because I've had, you know, some repercussions there of, you know, even CTOs of bigger companies that have said, Hey, you know, uh, just, in, just in case, like when I saw that, I just double checked on that with my team, you know, to make sure I can actually sleep at night because, um, the bad thing is when you someday wake up and, find out that you do not have the actual ownership. And it has happened to us that people, you know, contact us and say, hey, my previous developer left, disappeared, puff up and smoke, you know, whatever the reasons may be. But if you don't have access to everything that that person has built for you, um, then you might sometimes just have to start off from scratch, which is, you know, really the worst possible outcome. Is that just in the agreements you're signing to make sure that the code is yours? Part of it is in the agreement. So, for example, when you have a master service agreement, um, something that happens typically is that, um, you know, the uh, ownership of what a developer builds for you is tied to actual payments. Um, So, you know, once you've paid everything, like, I mean, the app ownership should be entirely yours. But then there is part of it that's more, you know, like during kind of the project management cycle, you know, just make sure that you have access to everything that, you know, ownership is actually on your accounts, um, that you also have access to documentation, just kind of everything, you know, like important around that entire process. And again, a serious developer should not at all ever, you know, question that or, uh, you know, ask you, hey, why do you want to have this access? Like, I mean, that's just the basics. Yeah. And I would recommend, I'm going to link it up into the show notes too, so that people go read the article. But one thing that I notice when I'm like, when I'm working with the complete beginner, Liz, is that like, dude, this is in your app store account. Like, you know, when one of the tips that you guys have in this Blog I know. Make sure it is your app store account. It's like, uh, this is under your developer's app store account. And so sign up right. for an app store account. It's like a hundred bucks a year. And then just make sure it's all under yours. Exactly. Exactly. And again, a serious developer should also advise you um, towards these kind of things. Yeah. The next thing I want to move on to next, and you know, people always have an idea, Liz, and they're like, oh my God, this is great. And they get so excited and they're just one of verbal diarrhea, right? And just tell you the idea. <laughs> but I feel like you have to document, like you should spend an hour to two hours really thinking through what the core features are going to be and all that stuff. And so what is that right document, right documentation that we should be thinking about, we should have before we go and ask for quotes? Right. I mean, um, I think the core of what you're asking me here is that when you're looking to compare different developers, development firms, however, you want to be able to actually compare apples to apples and not apples to pears. And um, just the other week, I had you know a company telling me that um, you know in a previous development project they had received quotes from 80k to 300k for the same project. 
So why is that happening? Well, first of all, of course, um, you know, if everyone, for example, estimated the same amount of time, um, there might be simply an hourly rate difference. So if you're comparing an offshore for firm against a nearshore firm, uh, then yes, uh, you know, that's just where the price difference might be. But if you have different timelines or if someone estimated, you know, two months and the other uh, company six months, then there might be a difference in how they understood your needs and your project. And the way to avoid this is to be as clear as possible from the very start regarding what you really want to build. And there are basically two main items. And again, you know, depending on the project, of course, there might be more or less, but the two main items that you need really to find, um, uh, you know, a working development quote is on the one hand, of course, um, the design. Uh, ideally, the final design, um, you know, clickable prototypes will just give the developer the exact idea of, you know, these are the screens, like, and if this is locked, the better, because, you know, there's not going to be that many variances. But in addition to that, or alternatively, if you're really early stage, you know, build a requirement, um, a feature requirements document, which basically outlines, you know, the entire infrastructure of what you're trying to build. Uh, you know, it doesn't work if you're just saying, hey, I want to do something that's fitness and Instagram and kind of blog. It's like, what is that? This could be, you know, something really simple to something absolutely huge. I mean, how much money has Instagram, you know, in, invested into their app? So, um, you know, be really specific in that case. And for people that are non-technical, um, uh, you know, like most of the development firms um, can actually do this for you. Yes, they might charge for that because it is actually, you know, uh, um, a process that might take a couple of weeks of, you know, just putting all of that together. But, you know, that's really money well spent because, it's something that you have to do anyways. And again, you will make sure that in the end, what you receive as far as quotes is actually something that's comparable. Yeah, I like that. Hey, maybe I missed this, Liz. Maybe you covered this already, but you're just like, hey, once you have that first app idea, like what is that first step when you when you should be thinking about the app? I think really like, you know, like when you're initially thinking about an app being either the core or part of your business, um, you know, which are kind of like the both options, um, you have to think about, am I really solving a problem here for actual people? Because if you read, you know, many of the stories for, from founders and from, um, you know, startup entrepreneurs, um, most of the times they are trying to solve a problem for themselves. It's, you know, I've encountered this problem, this challenge. Um, I have not found a solution for this. And that's what I'm going to solve because I'm sure that there are many, many people out there just like me. Well, maybe yes and maybe not. Right. So really, first of all, you know, do your due diligence, really do the research, check out all the competition, make sure that you are really onto something here. Um, and, you know, and it can start with kind of your environment, friends and family, but also think about, you know, if you, for example, are a lawyer and you think that, um, you know, uh, you, you have an idea to, you know, manage contracts in a smarter way, talk to other lawyers, don't talk to your parents. Mm -hmm. They might think, you know, you have a great idea here, but talk to actual, you know, potential real people that might be using uh, your app. And also consider, um, you know, I mean, today, you know, downloading an app, it's not the same than visiting a website. I mean, we visit hundreds of websites every day, every week, every month, but to actually download an app, there is a decision-making process. And you think about that a little bit more than just opening a URL. So for example, if I on Instagram see an ad for 
uh, let's give you a real example. Uh, on the weekend, you know, I have quite a lot of plants here. Um, and on Instagram, I saw an ad, an ad for an app that will help me, you know, like kind of identify my plants, you know, how to care for them. So I click on that. But then once I'm at the app store, that's when I think, oh, let me actually compare this to other apps and see if this one that I got an ad for is actually the best one. So then mm. I kind of search through that. And so, you know, until I actually download an app and not, let's not even say a paid app or, you know, an app with in-app subscriptions or purchases, you know, it is actually something hard. So really think about what you're trying to build here. And if you're um, providing a potential user with enough value um, to actually do that. Yeah, I like that. One of the things that is also you guys pride yourself at December Labs is the UX research. Like before you come up with the idea, build the MVP, do that US UX research. And I've shared multiple case studies through our YouTube channel and through this podcast about like, hey, modifying the UX, doing these little small things have led to some like incremental growth that is just beyond what we thought. And then one of our favorite case studies, Liz, is like one guy was making a dollar a day to now like $92 a day just by fixing the UX and some of the product features. Right. And that was it. I, I think, yeah. No, I, I, I really love that you're bringing that up. I mean, my my background is originally from digital marketing um, before I kind of pivoted towards tech um, uh, many years ago. And so like whenever I think about an app or I have the opportunity to strategize with uh, founders, with entrepreneurs about their products, um, again, you know, like, like I always look at this from a marketing perspective and really making sure that you're building the right product from the very start is just so essential. And it's, you know, not just, um, uh, you know, about, you know, your entire company, but also budget wise. I mean, when you go into development, that is going to be where you are going to spend a lot of money. And, um, you know, why would you not make sure beforehand that you're, you know, building something uh, the right way? Because let's say you have the, you have a good idea, you've validated that. Um, and, um, you know, uh, you are now ready to build a product. How do you make sure that you actually build it the right way, which is, you know, kind of the second question to it. And um, UX uh, research specifically is really, um, yeah, just being something almost magical here. Though, if you think about it in marketing, uh, you know, A-B testing has been around for a long time and UX research is still something, you know, like a buzzword almost, um, you know, within the past five years that's been uh, started starting to be applied in, uh, in app um, development. But um, let's maybe just first differentiate between UX and UI, which most people, um, you know, look at as kind of one. First of all, they both have the U in it for user. Um, <laughs> good starting point. It's good UX, yeah, it's user experience and user interface design. And when you think about user interface design, the UI design, that's kind of what you will probably think about traditionally as far as, you know, the visuals, the colors. It's kind of, you know, like the end product. And UX, the user experience is really kind of the backbone. It's the information architecture. It's the wireframes. It's really, you know, like how, how do you actually structure this? Mm. And within UX, there are, of course, many different areas, but particularly UX research um, focuses on the research of this area. And um, this means that at any point um, you're validating what you're building, um, you know, as, as good as you can, time-wise, money-wise, with actual users. And as you said, this can actually have a huge return of investment directly, which is sometimes, you know, not as not as easy to quantify, but uh, with UX research, you actually do have this. Um, one of my favorite examples there is um, a, a huge financial institution that we're working with. 
and um, that we oftentimes do, you know, really strong UX um, projects with that sometimes take, you know, three to four months of analyzing maybe, for example, an internal system, uh, you know, that is uh, op- that, that just all the employees use for um, operations. And let's say that, um, you know, they lose every day, you know, five to 10 minutes for the same tasks that are just, you know, not straightforward, that are not intuitive, and that you are able to fix that. I mean, that's five to 10 minutes of maybe thousands of people, you know, just look at the payroll, just look up at the free time. Because on the one hand, when you have UX research, you will always look at um, quantitative uh, metrics. You know, for example, hey, instead of five minutes, this is now taking a person one minute. Great, time safe. But also the um, the qualitative, meaning are they now happier employees when using this product? Are they actually getting things done quicker, not just because of the actual time, but because of their motivation? Uh, another thing is, for example, that oftentimes... Um, you know, and that again is kind of connected to marketing, you know, customer support people are typically the first ones to hear about potential problems, right? I mean, if it's through troubleshooting items from the app or however. So um, if you can free, like by solving certain items that um, users inquire about again and again and again, you will free up also more time of your customer support team, for example. Again, you know, the benefits, the monetary benefits are just oftentimes very, very clear. And that's, you know, as an economist, which I am originally, <laughs> um, it's, it's just amazing, you know, when you can actually put numbers um, to these kind of initiatives. When you're doing a UX research project, do you, what do you start off with? Is it looking at mm-hmm. other apps? Is it under, yeah, where do you start? Sure. Um, I mean, there are many different methodologies, for example, you know, that come from design thinking um, and uh, there or you have, for example, the design sprints from Google. And um, really, especially when you're a startup, first of all, I would say, you know, don't get scared by these kind of, um, you know, frameworks, because um, although they sometimes sound complex, there are many ways of adapting these, um, particularly for startups. Um, But in any case, you will probably start out with some kind of a research phase, um, which you can also call discovery where you on where you try to gather as much much information on anything from competitors on the overall space if you have already developed a prototype in the past you know maybe there are metrics from analytics heat maps any kind of you know behavioral statistics in that sense um, and then of course um, actual user feedback user data or if you don't have users yet you can source users and uh, you know kind of potentially um, show them maybe initial mockups of the app have them walk you know through that um, so it's kind of really about the information gathering. Um, what you then do is kind of, you know, based on that, you, you create a baseline, like where are we starting off of? You know, like you've identified a problem or a need for a feature or however. Um, so with that baseline, you start working um, kind of gradually on a solution, which first, you know, is, goes kind of theoretically into that, you know, information architecture, which and on a website would be the sitemap, but it's, you know, really about how you put all of this together. Um, then oftentimes you go towards lo-fi wireframes where you're just kind of validating the overall structure and, you know, up to the final design. And that's also where UX and UI really get intertwined because you can actually do UX research on the final UI, for example. It's not, you know, that this is, you know, first one, then the other. No, like these are um, all connected. And that's kind of, you know, uh, an overall really high level process that then again can, you know, go really into the nitty and gritty, depending on what you're trying to um, validate here. Yeah. You know, Liz, I want to move on to one of the things that, you know, thank you for filling out this form that we asked our guests to fill out, but you, you kind of talk about like something that a big mistake. And I see this too, as well as like, when you're building something, you're building something for the millions instead of like starting small. Can you go into deeper on that? What you mean by that? 
Sure. Um, I mean, you know, a, a quick um, real life example. Last year, um, I was talking to this influencer who wanted to build, um, you know, their first uh, mobile app. And of course, they said, hey, you know, I want this to be iOS and Android, but they were very budget sensitive. So I asked them, so why do you want to do this for iOS and Android? Well, I have to, you know, like my, my audience is, you know, like really huge out there. There might be, you know, people that want to use iOS and Android. Mm -hmm. and, so, and then I asked, you know, how, how would you promote this? And they said via Instagram. So I said, so why don't you ask your Instagram followers if they actually use iOS or Android? And that influencer did that. And it was actually 95% iOS and 5% Android. So I was like, you know, why don't we start with iOS? Like, I mean, this is, you know, like really, uh, you know, a simple example. And of course, there are many, many more nuances to this, but really think about the core first, especially when you're um, budget sensitive, but also in general, you know, again, going back to that, I want to build an Instagram versus fitness versus, you know, whatever big, huge, you know, app example. What's really the core of that? Because if you want to build that, then it might take us two years. And, you know, maybe in two years, your business proposition is not even valuable anymore. So, you know, what what problem are you really trying to solve? Like, why would someone download your app? Um, and, you know, what really would make you different there? Um, and, and it is really a lot of education here because, again, most startups and entrepreneurs have a personal stories to them. And you have to emphasize with that because that's also value, very valuable. Sometimes these are, you know, like really um, heartfelt stories about them actually going through certain things. Um, you know, it's not just all about the money and the business, but sometimes it's really about, you know, I don't want to say changing the world, but, you know, like making pe people's lives better. Um But, uh, but yeah, you know, kind of go through that thought process. Um, you know, I'm always happy to do that together with, um, with the people that reach out to us. And it's actually one of the most rewarding things as well, when you're able to actually provide value in that sense. Yeah. And, I, you know, like sometimes I have bigger clients who have a lot more budget for marketing. I'm thinking mm -hmm. through like, okay, well, let's not waste it all in one full bang, right? Like, let's have this measure grow right. our own type of mentality And the biggest mismatch I see from early developers, especially first-time founders, they have a like a billion-dollar like idea in their mind, right? They want to build the next mm -hmm. Instagram, like you've been kind of saying. But yeah. their budget's like super bootstrapped, and it's like it's like you your idea has to be funded. You can't do this like bootstrapping, right? Right. And it's like where where do you fall in? If you're trying to bootstrap, well, here's some other app ideas that are going to be mm -hmm. lower cost to build, and probably you can flip this into being a very profitable business, but your idea, you're going to have to raise funding. So do you have a network? Do you have people like the guy who started Instagram, Kevin, he, like, you know, he had a network, like you forget about the network right. that he came from Twitter and came from all these other things. And so, yeah, I feel like there's just a mismatch sometimes. Yep. No, hundred percent agreed. Um, and again, I think, What I really like about being in the position that I am is that every day I get to hear, you know, like really interesting stories about, you know, just what might be the next best thing out there. Yeah. Um, but I can actually participate in that. And, and um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, it happened that I was um, talking to the startup and they were kind of walking me through their idea. And I was just really thinking about, hey, you know, like what would the use case be? And I, you know, gave them just a couple of inputs and they said, hey, this is actually great. Like we're going to add this to our product requirements document. And that's like, Okay, I'm doing I'm doing my job well because that's and and that's also when I know 
that in the end, there are going to have at least a bigger chance of building the right product. Because I mean, let's be realistic. You know, there are so many statistics out there that say that 90% of all startups fail. Um, but I mean, of course, if we wouldn't have people trying, then we wouldn't have innovation in the space. So of course, I always want to encourage people to continue to build their products, their dreams, their companies. Um, but you know, working with people that have experience in this, at least you can avoid some of the pitfalls um, that you know are out there. Totally. And I, I agree with you on that. Like, I'm not going to be a good judge. Like, Hey, Steve, do you think it's a good idea? I'm like, I'm not here for that. I'm here to help you because I, I don't like, if you told me Airbnb would be taken off, like, hell no, I'm not going to sleep at somebody's house. Right? <laughs> right. Like, I'm not going to share a room. <laughs> but, so I'm not going to be a judge of character in terms of, but I'll help you yeah. without making those mistakes and making sure you're spending your money right and growing the right way rather than just being like all in one. Yeah. Yep. Well, you brought this up a little bit earlier, Liz, about like the iOS versus Android idea. So what are some things that as developers we should consider from going native to maybe a hybrid model where we have one code base and get out in both app stores? So first of all, again, being an economist and being German, actually having, you know, one code base, like just sounds so much more efficient for me. And I really, really like the idea. Um, but it is very important to make informed decisions about going hybrid versus native. And again, you know, this is a conversation that I literally have every week. So the first thing that I think is important here to differentiate is, of course, with um, native development, you are, you know, building a, a, a code base for iOS versus Android, two separate code bases. Um, you know, you have typically the best user experience. These apps are really scalable. I mean, this is kind of the, the right way of building it, if you want to put it that way. Um, now, with hybrid development, you have part of the code base shared, but then you still always have to adapt, you know, a certain part to the actual native operative system. So the question is, is what you're trying to build, like how much of shared code base can there be to really see, like, if you are going to save ongoing hybrid, which is one of the main, um, you know, ideas of people that want to go hybrid. Um, you know, they think, hey, I'm going to save time and money. And yes, you are going to typically save uh, time and money, but it's not necessarily 50% as some people think, because again, you know, there is still a part that has to be, you know, done for each platform. So in, our, in my experience, for example, oftentimes you save about 30%. So the question is, um, you know, are you going to get an, you know, as well functioning app saving that 30% than if you were going to pay full. And that depends on your features because there are certain, you know, types of features where going hybrid, you know, is really not a problem at all. But then, for example, if you have very entertainment heavy um, apps, you know, with a lot of video or if you have, um, uh, you know, anything related to geolocation or even, you know, and that's one area where we um, work a lot in um, when you have any Bluetooth connectivity with wearables or smart devices, then in my experience, at least, you know, like going down further the road of developing new features and everything, typically you don't save any time, you know, really going forward and connection is oftentimes not as stable. Um, so in those cases, yes, it's, feasible to go hybrid, but if you can't really, you know, like if, if you're going to offer your customers more problems really, um, and if just the overall experience is not going to be as intuitive, then that might not be the right business decision. And also, um, you know, really look at not just what you're building now, but what are your ideas in the, into the future? Um, the conversation that I sometimes have is, you know, okay, so today you want to build features ABC. 
those are totally, you know, valid in hybrid development. But what, you know, would be a potential phase two? And if that potential phase two does involve some features that might not be as feasible in hybrid development, then I do at least want to alert on that early on. Because what could be worse than, you know, going hybrid first and then after a year of this being successful and you want to, you know, you wanting to go into phase two, it's like, no, this won't work in hybrid. Mm. So again, both options are totally valid. And I understand, you know, kind of the, the, um, the, the, the nice aspect of going hybrid, but you do have to make sure that you make an informed decision so that your budget is being spent wisely. Yeah. I like that. And I like how you broke it down. Liz, <laughs> covered so much here. Is there anything I I know. that you want to make sure we, we cover? Um, no, I mean, just overall for me, and, and you might've kind of noticed that, um, one of the main things that I really emphasize on is that people make better informed decisions when they go into design and development in general. I mean, there is a lot of negative stigma. There are so many people that have had negative experiences with, um, you know, development in general. And so I do believe that while I can prevent that from happening, if I can help that people are better informed about certain areas, then at least, you know, they might be more diligent when they're going into this process. Um, so that's why, you know, over the past, you know, months, really, we've been putting um, together a lot of information again on our blog under kind of the umbrella concept of democratizing knowledge, because that's really what it is about, you know, in the tech space. I love the tech space. I think it's just amazing what you can do in the space. And I think there are just so many more exciting things to come. But when you are in the space, and especially when you're not not as tech savvy, you know, get informed, do your due diligence, you know, um, and I'm sure that the path will just run a lot smoother. Well, I will link up the blog post. It is decemberlabs.com. Just click on blog and you'll find all the information there. Liz, this has been amazing, but let's go to the big finish. Give us one app that we should definitely check out. Um, Well, that's a good question. Um, I have to say that while, of course, I might have, you know, many apps that everyone uses every day and that I also use every day, one app that comes to my mind that has really just solved such a fundamental um, problem for me is uh, Shazam. And the reason is like, if I think about my childhood and, you know, just like listening to songs on the radio, and if you just miss the radio host, you know, telling you what song or what artist it was, I would sometimes be going on for like weeks or months and sometimes years, like after, you know, like up to finding out really, you know, like what that song was and to listen to that again. And, you know, being a musician myself, um, when Shazam came out, it was like, I have been waiting for that all my life, like to just, I don't know, be at a restaurant and I hear a song that, you know, just captures the moment or ever, and I can just Shazam it. Like, I think that's just totally magical. Um, still, even though I work in tech, it's still, it's pure magic. <laughs> well, I've had the co-founder of Shazam, one of the first, the first CEO of Shazam on, on the podcast as well, early in the day. So make sure you oh, search cool. for Shazam in, on our blog and you'll find I that will do. Well. Yeah. He's awesome. a really good interview. I'm like, how did you think of this? And like, it's so early, right? Like, you built this way early I on know. before we even had any of this crazy technology. But Liz, no, and also the- let me Sorry. let me add one thing one thing to that actually, because um, as I mentioned earlier, I used to work a lot in digital marketing and particularly for the music industry. And just, you know, the amount of, um, you know, sales that Shazam has been able to generate also for artists, because, you know, um, uh, you, you are Shazamming a song and you will probably then either going to stream it or, you know, in the early days, download it. Um, and that is also so important for an industry that has been triggered a lot, um, you know, by piracy and everything. So um, it's not just about the user, but also about the industry which I think is, again, you know, just totally marvelous. <laughs> What's a lesson? It could be personal or business that took you the longest to learn. Um, another good question. Again, 
I think, you know, being German, being an economist, like I really like process a lot. And I think um, with development, you just at some point have to acknowledge that you can plan for everything. It's kind of like, you know, a living a living thing. Like, I mean, um, and, and that's also where, um, you know, when I started to learn a few years back, you know, about kind of agile methodologies, um, you know, that kind of... Um, give you a framework on how to develop in an efficient way. But, you know, like, let's look at it this way. You can maybe build a totally bug-free product um, by adding a lot of QA, you know, quality assurance to it, but it will take you years to build this. And you kind of have to, you know, get to a point where you're continuously building something, yes, testing it, but, you know, that it's still also efficient. And um, and for people like me, that that ha that was in the beginning kind of hard to accept when I got into development, like, because it's just, you know, against what I would do. But, um, but it is what it is. And one of the key things there is when you work with a developer is um, communication and transparency, because you have to be on the same page when you're getting into this. And you have to understand that any app will at some points have bugs and you might add one feature and it might break something else. And that happens, but you have to know what kind of process is in place. You have to, you know, have skilled developers that write, you know, a solid code um, to um, kind of keep these, um, you know, hiccups at a minimum. But still, you have to know that this will happen. So, uh, yeah, still learning about that sometimes, though. <laughs> I like but I think, yeah, everyone will be happier if they just acknowledge. Um, yeah. Now, I have to ask a personal question. Because you're a musician, we see, if you guys are not watching this on the video, we see beautiful <laughs> instruments, like so many instruments. Liz can play up to what? I think it was 10, 20? Yeah, a little over 10. <laughs> 10, okay. So, Liz, I've got small hands, right? Like, I wanted to learn how to play the guitar, but like my hands are tiny. The... So I was like, okay, let's start out with the ukulele, right? Like, let's try that. Is that a good <laughs> idea or is that a dumb idea? Like, just go with the guitar, you dummy, and just start with that? Like, what do you think? Um, well, I uh, actually, uh, something similar happened to me early on, and it was really hard for me to play um, certain types of guitars. But first of all, there are smaller guitars, like... Okay. For example, they call them travel guitars that are just smaller built so that um, they're easy actually to travel with, but that are also friendlier on, for example, smaller hands and things like that. But then the ukulele is just, you know, um, a, fun, a really fun instrument and it's a lot easier. Like, I mean, it just has four chords versus a six from the guitar. And it's really easy to just, you know, start playing a few tunes. And then if you want, you can always move over um, to the guitar and kind of continue learning. Sold. What's your favorite instrument to play? Oh, that's, you really saved the best for last. Um, <laughs> I buttered you up with all this I know. <laughs> now we're going to a real this is, this is what it's really about. Um, I have to say that I, because I'm also a singer-songwriter, the, the guitar is just, you know, my always favorite companion of everything that I do. Love the guitar. <laughs> do you have a SoundCloud or somewhere we can check out your music too? Um, yes, we have Instagram, YouTube, um, on the, you know, Liz Bowman, and then uh, also my band, El Color Ausente, the absent color, if you want to check that out on Instagram yeah, or YouTube. I do. I do. This was not planned. Music. I'm sorry? <laughs> this was not planned. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it on this. That's, that's what I do best, you know? I'm like, I know. No. We're talking about tech, and then now you've got that version. <laughs> well, Liz, this was... Well, this is really amazing. Now, if you guys want to go check it out, it is December labs, December labs.com, just like the month December. So December labs.com, all that is linked up into the show notes and in your favorite podcast app. So if you click on Liz's name, 
it, you tell us where you want that to go. But if you click on December Labs, you go straight to the website. But Liz, if the audience yep. does want to follow up with you personally, talk about ukuleles, yes. talk about guitar, music, and tech, <laughs> anything. And all, where do you want to send them? You want to send them anywhere else? Um, yeah, feel free to um, you know hit me up on LinkedIn um, or shoot me an email at elizabeth at decemberlabs.com. You know, always um, excited to grab virtual coffees these days um, and and yeah, and just have fun conversations about tech. That's very cool. So if you click on Liz's name, Elizabeth, you will go to straight to our LinkedIn as well. Liz, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Awesome. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. <laughs> thank you all for listening. I'll see you on the next chat. Thanks for listening to the App Masters podcast. For show notes and amazing app marketing content, check out appmasters.co.